This is an ABC podcast. You're listening to The Country Hour on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. Hello, I'm Cassie Huff. Great to have your company for The Country Hour today across South Australia and into the far west of New South Wales. Now, some of you might have finished harvest before Christmas or maybe you're only just winding up now. It's certainly been a massive grain year, possibly a record crop, but were you able to make the most of the rain? And in the end, does rain equal grain? You know, we didn't actually have enough solar radiation in September to make use of all that water that we had in the paddock. So actually we were more limited by um, solar radiation than we were water. I'll have more on what farmers have made of the 2022-23 harvest and particularly whether they were able to maximise the rainfall that fell. And I'd be interested in your thoughts on this. Did you think you were going to pull off a bigger crop than you did based on perhaps more rain than normal? Or were you? did you get a bigger crop? I'd love to know. Text me 0467 891 or phone 1300 991. So we'll be taking a look at what it takes to maximise a good year with good rainfall. Also, there are signs that the lucin seed will be uh, uh, pretty uh, in demand this year ahead of the harvest, which is about to kick off. But first up, come February 20, growers will have to book in with Viterra if they want to drop off grain. About 18 sites across the state will keep taking in grain, though. General Manager of Operations at Viterra, Gavin Kavanagh, explains what's happening now harvest is drawing to a close. One of the things that Viterra is aiming to do is still um, providing options for growers wanting to deliver uh, their grain, whether it be uh, they're still harvesting or through um, grain they have potentially stored on farm or grain they might have sold to clients through our Port Direct product. So from sort of late February, which is sort of for us, we've picked Monday the 20th of February, we'll be receiving grain from growers, whether they deliver in the warehouse or through our Port Direct product, through what we call our post-harvest delivery procedures, which require growers to actually book in loads and we've provided the detail of where growers can book those loads in. And that just enables us to coordinate the receival of grain or continue to receive grain and coordinate that with other activities uh, such as our outturn program or our fumigation program. And the other thing we would ask growers to do as part of that procedure is um, fill in what we call a post-harvest delivery form, uh, which just advises what chemical or fumigant they may have put on their stored grain. And that way we can manage the quality grain right throughout the supply chain. How many sites are going to continue to receive grain by appointment? We have approximately 18 sites spread across all three regions um, and we'll continue to work with growers. If if there, there may be the occasional site or, for example, pulse site on the West Coast or GM product, we can't take it poor and we may look to or, or try and coordinate with our outturn program some additional sites if if required as well. But uh, we've posted up up to 18 sites on our our website um, to give the growers uh, multiple options of and options in each region where they can deliver to. Will all grades be accepted? Again, we're looking by providing um, 18 sites across all regions. um, That should provide options for sort of all all grades um, and all 
all commodities um, and, and give those growers in an ideal world a, a couple of different options. As I said, for the West Coast where perhaps um, we don't receive as many pulses, we'll just, um, if the grower's keen to deliver us pulses uh, post-harvest, he'll still contact the regional office and we'll work with them on uh, creating them an option for delivery. And it is getting to the end of harvest. Do you know yet if this is the most grain Viterra has ever received? It is their second largest harvest on record in terms of receivables. We've just received a smidge over 8.8 million tonnes into the system, uh, which is slightly behind where we were in 16-17 when we uh, finished uh, around 9.4 million tonnes. Okay, so you're probably unlikely to get to 9.4 this year. Is there anywhere that's really still bringing in loads in earnest or is it really just dribs and jabs now? It is just dribs and drabs. Our our sort of daily receivables at the moment are ranging sort of from five to 10,000 tonne of grain per day. And how's the shipping program going? You're pretty busy at port? Yeah, we've been exceptionally busy um, ensuring the grain... um, goes through the supply chain. We've just shipped over 2 million tonne of grain since we loaded our first new season vessel back in October. And that's sort of 52 vessels headed to uh, 22 different countries. It's been a, a very long harvest and there have been a few curveballs this harvest with the, the white grain disorder that, that caused issues, particularly for girls in the north and uh, some other issues that, that reared their head. Uh, coming out of harvest, what do you want to hear from growers? Coming out of harvest, we, we value the feedback um, from all, all of our grower customers. And one of the ways that we try and attain some feedback um, sort of immediately after harvest is we put out our post-harvest sur- survey, both to growers and carriers, who are also an important stakeholder in the supply chain. So we'd welcome, well, we welcome feedback throughout the season, but we'd particularly encourage growers at the moment um, to complete the post-harvest surveys. It's a great way for us to review what, what we're doing well, but al- also areas that we can improve in. Operations General Manager Gavin Kavanagh speaking there. So book in if you want to drop off grain after February 20. And speaking of grain... Does more rain necessarily mean more grain? That's the question being posed by farming systems agronomist Kenton Porker. After record rainfall in many parts of the state, he's been speaking with growers about what can be learnt and applied to maximise yields if another La Nina heads our way. It's a really good time of year to think back on, on 2022 and we're at that time of the season when we're you know benchmarking our grain yields, just thinking, well, what did I achieve? But then... We think about how wet it was in 2022. It's a really good time to think about. Well, did we actually maximise our yield in 2022? Did we leave any yield behind in the paddock? And what what can we learn from a season like that? If we get another wet season or another La Nina season, what can we learn and implement from a season like 2022? So, when you asked the farmers in the room that question, what was their response? I think everyone thought it was their yields were probably slightly lower than what we expected from from last season and. We're all sitting there wondering what might have been the cause for that. So you can sit down and start to think about it. Like, did we have enough nitrogen in our system, enough fertiliser? Um, did we get affected by frost? Did we get affected by heat? It was the timing of rain out? But I think one of the things we haven't really realised in Australia is when we get one of these seasons, what I'd call, let's call them the better seasons, or if we're in the high rainfall zone, often we're not limited by water. So we think that we're, you know, Australia's a, a nation of 
I'm dry, and yes, it is, but actually in a season like last year, when you go back and look at what happened, it was actually, you know, we didn't actually have enough solar radiation in September to make use of all that water that we had in the paddock. So actually we were more limited by um, solar radiation than we were water in 2022. Do you think that there is that misconception that those high rainfall years will just equal larger yields? That's exactly it, yeah. Like, I think there's this conception that we can just, you know, pour on water and we'll just keep taking yields up, but it's not as simple as that. So you've really got to think about, well, what can I do to make the most of my critical resource? So, sure, water is a critical resource, but light is also a critical resource. So what can I do on my farm to make the most of capturing light? And it's one thing, like, you might say, oh, I can't make it sunnier or I can't make it brighter, I can't... I can't get any more light, but it's actually a lot of things that you can do just for simple crop management to make sure that you actually do um, capture and make the most of, of that, that resource. And what are some of those things? Yeah, that, that's a really good question. So I've been fortunate enough to be involved in the GRDC Hyper Yielding Crops Program, which is um, led by Fire Australia. And really they're looking at every agronomic lever, if you like, that can maximise yields in these environments where water's not limiting. So one of the key things that we've found is actually making sure you align your crop development so that the speed in which your crop progresses to flowering with the environment. So at a time when you're going to maximise the amount of light that you get from the environment. Now this happens during what we call the critical period, which is three to four weeks before flowering. And what we're trying to do is maximise light interception during the critical period, because that's what determines potential grain number. So we also want low temperatures during that phase. So if you have a cooler temperature during that period, you can lengthen the time that you form grain. And you also want bright, sunnier days during that period, which will build more grain during that phase from further synthesis. So that really comes back to making sure you have the right sowing date. So make, make sure you have the right variety at the right sowing date so that you align your critical period of all flowering time with your environment to capture most of those resources. So in essence, it's about trying to create the perfect recipe with water and light. Have we seen this done successfully outside of South Australia or, or Australia? Yes, certainly. So if you look at even the world record cereal yields, so they've just been broken. So now wheat yields in the United Kingdom are almost to 18 tonnes per hectare. But even in the hyper yielding crops project, we've achieved yields of up to 14, 16 tonnes per hectare in wheat. And you look at, you go back and look at what, what it was that was driving those yields. And it is this ratio between temperature and light in the critical period. But you have to have your crop ticking along. So you need green leaves in that period to make sure that they're capturing all that light. So you want to be capturing up to 95% of the light during that period. And if you think about what you can do on farm, so that disease management, you have a wet season like 2022 where disease was rife. If you didn't manage disease during that period, you look at some of the yield responses that were coming out of trials. So I just think of some simple examples that even in the Mallee, so untreated barley crops yielding three tonne, but then treated with three or four fungicides yielding seven tonnes. So a four tonne difference just from managing disease. And that's not really related to water. That, that's related to keeping your green leaves. So keeping leaves green in the upper canopy um, to capture light. Farming Systems Agronomist with the CSIRO, Kenton Porker, speaking with Dimitri Panagiotaris. And I'd be interested to know if uh, you were able to maximise the rainfall this year. You can text me 0467 921 or phone 1300 991. It's 16 minutes past 12. You're listening to Cassie Huff on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. 
One crop's harvest has finished, another's about to start. Loosen crops are just about ready to harvest in the southeast, and signs are good that uh, prices will be strong. With less crop than previous years and strong demand, farmers could be getting close to record prices, at least according to the director of Narra Court Seeds, Josh Rashid, Rashid, who says he has been checking in with growers as orders for loosen seed starts to roll in. Yeah, so I want, wanted had a good look through Francis, Willaluka, Keith, Tinti, Colbatch, all those through those areas, um, just to try and get a handle on where potentially seed yields will be, so we know what's coming off for the coming season. Because we uh, currently are, have never seen it before, sold out of all public loosened varieties. Now I've been here 11 years now, and have never been to the end of the season where we can't offer Aurora or Cy River or any other products. So it's um, it's uh, haven't seen that before. It's crazy. So what does that mean, Josh? Does that are more people interested in them? Like what what's kind of caused that? Do you think the last two to three years um, we saw a drop in production area that was um, going through for loosened seed. So growers who had pivots instead of growing that for loosened seed, they went and grew uh, grew it for hay or or put livestock on there uh, and prices were increasing for hay and livestock as well at that time so a lot of growers switched over and loosened seed wasn't paying all that well to growers so we were down on area probably 30 to 40 percent of what we would normally harvest and we still aren't back to the what we would call average production area figures and export and domestic inquiry has been very strong for the last um, three years as well. Yeah, so have um, you had people inquiring yet? Have you had to turn people away? Uh, yes, yeah, so we have got people inquiring for loosen both domestically and export on the export front. Um, domestically, we just simply can't supply a um, public variety or varieties that we manage outside a proprietary variety. Um, so some of our varieties like magnet loosens and aurora and those things, we can't offer until we get the harvest, so they have to wait, or we substitute for a different product. Um, but export-wise, they have to literally wait till we get seed off, cleaned and tested so that we can then send it over there. So we can do contracts to sell seed, but we wouldn't be able to sell it or, or ship it until sort of April, May, June this year. So all in all, with you know, no stock, really no carryover and demand looking to be fairly strong for export and domestic, looks like prices for loosened seed growers this year will be at record highs, which is great for growers with their production costs. You know, continuing to rise, hopefully with the OK yields, um, they can actually make some money out of it again, which is good. Narracott Seeds Director Josh Rashid. So how are crops looking this season? Growers are starting to harvest this month and yields are expected to be about on average. Scott Hutchings, agronomist for Cox Rural Keith and chair of Lucent Australia, says from what he's seen, there won't be many bumper crops this year. Basically, the, the industry, we hit a peak of about 25,000 hectares of lucency production, of certified lucency production, I think the summer of 1718. We're now down to about 13,000 hectares. So historically, we're on the lower end of, of production levels. Yeah, and as well, this season, it's been quite variable with, with the weather conditions. And lucent requires warm, stable, hot conditions, relatively warm conditions to set well. And we've also had regular insect pressure particularly with crop mirrors this year. So it's, it's put a lot of pressure on the crop. And the crops, I'd say, are kind of, as a general comment, are looking long-term average through the southeast. You know, we're not... I don't think it's going to be a, a significantly above-average year of total tonnage. 
So that'll put further pressure on the industry as far as price pressure. And also, I think, you know, it'll depend a little bit on export demand, which is always a bit of an unknown. So I'd expect Lucent Sea prices and demand to be quite strong. With the production being a bit less, do you think that that'll be encouraging a bit more production at the end of harvest going into next year? Or what are some of the flow-on effects? Yeah, it can be quite seasonal. Um, so obviously high prices always brings a little bit of extra production into line, but it's it's a perennial crop and you don't necessarily swing in and swing out of it in a quickly. Mm. So I think after the lower prices from a few years ago, a lot of people have moved out of lucency production in more marginal areas and it's kind of becoming a more hardcore producer's sort of crop. So the guys who are regularly into it are growing it, but we're, we're seeing less people come into it really. So the, the last few years have been, the, the certified area has been, you know, kind of half of the peak. And have you been out and talking to, to growers very much? How are they feeling about yeah. things? Yeah, you know, they're positive about the price. Loose, loose and seeds the type of crop. We've still got a, a number of risks before, before it's harvested. We could still see in flights of pests, notably seed wasp yet. And, you know, any sort of weather conditions, you know, the next few weeks look stable, which will mean that the, the early dryland growers should get a crack at harvest. But, you know, any significant rainfall from now onwards until the end of March could could dramatically affect the crop. So it's never guaranteed until it's in the silo. No. Hopefully the Lucent growers have a smooth harvest. That was Lucent Australia Chair Scott Hutchings speaking with Elsie Adamo. Weather's up next, but in the meantime, Australian cattle prices have been on the slide this year. In fact, they've been falling pretty steadily since last November. The benchmark Eastern Young Cattle Indicator is now at more than $4.30 a kilo behind its record high, which was set early last year. The feeder steer indicator has also fallen nearly 25% in just three months as well. So what's causing the slide and has the bottom of the market been reached for 2023? Matt Brand put those questions to market analyst Matt Duglish. Um, I think there's a couple of reasons, both domestically and internationally, Matt. If you go at the international space, we've had, you know, up until recently, China was kind of struggling through this zero COVID policy, which has now changed and now they're opening up. But prior to that, there was a little bit of a kind of concern around the Chinese economy, um, lockdowns in certain cities. So that meant that, you know, their demand wasn't as strong as it maybe could be for going out and eating. And then that flows through to the red meat space. Uh, Also, then, if you look across to the US, we've had the US in their third year of liquidation. So they've been a bit inundated towards the end of the year with uh, red meat stores over there. So that kind of took a bit of a sting out of that market as well. So there's those factors overseas. And then domestically, I think, you know, we're starting to, you know, as the producers are starting to look towards the climate, you know, we've had three years of really good seasons and the chance of getting a fourth year of a really wet, good season for the, for the cattle producer, I think, is pretty unlikely. Uh, the Bureau now saying that, you know, the La Nina is breaking down uh, and, the, and we're likely to go back to a more normal season this year. And, you know, the next thing, I guess, around the corner is likely to then be uh, the potential of a of an El Nino and a drought phase. So um, I think that kind of really exuberance to buy cattle we saw the last few years from the restocker, I think that's just starting to wane a little bit now as mm. well. So that's kind of taken some of that demand out of the sale yard. And supply into sale yards in general, it's up, yes? That's right too, yes. So since the start of the year, we started to see numbers flowing, uh, higher numbers both for slaughter and for, for kind of throughput at the sale yard. You know, I think there was a bit of a backlog too, you know, through that latter part of last year, in some areas, it was a bit tricky getting access because of the, the flooding we saw in, in certain parts of the country. Um, and that's alleviated a bit now. So we started to see a few animals come forward in the early part of this year. And that's kind of 
probably the, the strongest supply we've seen since probably 2019, 2020. In terms of prices, have we seen the bottom of the market for 2023? That's a, that's a, that's a tough one. Um, I actually think possibly not for the whole of 2023, but I think certainly now where we're sitting, I expect that pricing's you know kind of a bit overdone to the to the downside. So we're a bit undervalued, I think, in the cattle space right now. Uh, my my personal view is that we're going to see the market kind of grind higher a little bit through the first quarter, maybe into second quarter. Um, I, I'm just a bit reserved because towards the back end of this year, if we start to look like we're going to turn to a drier season in 2024, I think we might see you know return to softer pricing maybe in the final quarter of 2023. Uh, whether it goes as low as this or not is another, you know, probably hard one to, to, to gauge. But I'd say the next six months at least, I think we're in for slightly, you know, kind of more f- support coming into the market and more firmer pricing uh, in the cattle space, I think, as we head towards winter. Market analyst Matt Dalglish from episode3.net speaking there with Matt Brandt. Certainly will be interesting to see what happens as this uh, La Nina breaks down and uh, come about May, June, we'll see what the next year holds. But it certainly does feel like it's getting a little drier and certainly these uh, next few days are going to be quite hot and dry. But Senior Forecaster from the Bureau of Meteorology, Mark Analak, can give us some more detail on that. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Cassie. You stole my thunder. Hot and dry. That's about the week ahead. <laughs> and that's it. <laughs> that's about it, yes. No, look, at the moment we have a high-pressure system which is really dominating the, the weather over the southern agricultural, over the agricultural areas. So we're maintaining a, an onshore south-southeasterly airstream, bringing us milder temperatures to agricultural areas. But in the far north of the state, uh, there's a lot of hot air hovering over Western Australia that's starting to poke down into the northwest pastoral district. So very hot conditions in the northwest. And this afternoon we could see a sort of an afternoon shower or thunderstorm popping up in the far northwest corner. But uh, otherwise, very dry conditions, clear skies across most of South Australia today. Moving into tomorrow, um, that high pressure system continues to be influence the weather down south so it starts to move eastwards winds are still out of the southeast mild to warm temperatures mostly sunny conditions um, there might be a little bit of cloud around the coast but mostly sunny conditions um, and in the north of the state still that very hot air is trying to make its way southwards that won't happen until probably Wednesday Thursday when the high pressure system finally moves into the Tasman the winds will turn east northeasterly and that very hot air will move southwards to the agricultural areas and we're likely to see temperatures in the high 30s, low 40s across much of South Australia. Um, probably more so the western parts of South Australia on Wednesday but then through central and eastern parts on Thursday. Um, very hot day expected on Thursday across South Australia. There is a change on the way. It's a quite a weak shallow change initially so we'll only feel the effects of it along southern parts of the state. Um, Thursday it'll be in the west, Friday morning it'll be about central parts of the state and then by Friday afternoon that change will probably push over remaining agricultural areas. So it never makes it to the northeast pastoral district. That'll stay very hot right through uh, the week and into the weekend. But for southern parts of the state there's a bit of a reprieve there late this week when the uh, temperatures for the weekend drop back to uh, I guess more near average summer temperatures but for this week very hot conditions are expected to develop dry um, 
may even be a sort of severe heat wave developing up in the northwest pastoral district. So dry and very hot across the state this week. Um, in terms of rainfall amounts, <laughs> no point going there really. Um, no, no rainfall expected um, uh, right through until at least Friday anyhow. So um, that's about it from me, Cassie. Yes, it's uh, certainly rather summery sort of pattern at the moment. Thanks so much for that, Mark Anlack. My pleasure. And into the far west of New South Wales, the weather in the Upper Western is going to be sunny. There is the chance of a thunderstorm in the northeast in the late afternoon and evening. Winds could pick up a little. Overnight temperatures are going to fall to between 15 and 18 degrees, but the daytime temperatures will reach the low to high 30s. The Lower Western will be sunny, again a bit of wind. Overnight temperatures there getting down to 11 to 15 degrees, but again the daytime temperatures reaching the low 30s. So were still rather warm there in the far west and probably getting warmer as the rest of South Australia will as well. I've got more to come on the country. We're going to be looking at roads and um, I'd be interested to know which roads in particular you are pretty keen to see some work done on. That's coming up in the next half hour as we approach 12.30. You're listening to The Country Hour. For more stories from across the country, go to abc.net.au slash rural. On ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill, this is Cassie Huff. Cassie Huff. Hello, it's great to have your company today. As the River Murray water recedes, damage done to roads is becoming apparent. There's been a fair bit of damage in the Riverland and parts of the Murraylands as well. But you didn't have to be on the river to also see a lot of damage done with potholes and things like that from the rain and I guess uh, heavy traffic going over it for the last few months with harvest. And South Australia is not alone right across the country. Roads are in a terrible state. I drove back to northern New South Wales uh, in early January and the roads are abysmal everywhere. And there's a push on now to uh, try and get some money into the, the federal budget that will be coming up later this year. Uh, the, some of the most influential agricultural lobby groups have teamed up to pressure the government to inject $5.5 billion into the nation's road network. And uh, we'll have a little bit of a look at where they want to see that target that's coming up in the next half hour or so. We're going to get you know, more and more adverse weather conditions and it's not enough to just repair the roads to the same spec. We have to actually think about what it's going to take um, to get the roads repaired so that they can handle um, these conditions into the future and that is not a cheap task. I'll have more on that soon and I'd be interested to know your thoughts. Text 0467 922 891 or phone 1300 222 Also, uh, he might be a citrus and grape farmer at Kingston-on-Murray. But Mintu Bra is also a bit of an international sensation. I'll tell you a bit more about how he's done that up next. But first, we have to find out what's making news with Matt Coleman. Good afternoon. Hello, Cassie. In the news this afternoon, firefighters found two bodies at a house fire in Adelaide South this morning. They were called to a property on Emerald Street at Edwardstown shortly after 5 o'clock. The fire was confined to one room and police say the victims are members of the same family and the blaze is suspicious. 
A district court judge says that a drug driver who struck a pedestrian while hoon driving in Adelaide CBD has exhausted all leniency. Judge Michael Durant has sentenced 26-year-old Jamie Stephen Waters to almost three years and four months in jail for dangerous driving and leaving the scene of an accident. He'll be able to apply for parole next year. And birthing services will return to Kangaroo Island after being suspended last year due to staff shortages, forcing pregnant women to travel to the mainland to give birth. The new service will include a midwifery unit manager, two registered midwives and specialist medical consultants who will be on call to provide birthing services on the island. More news at one o'clock. Thanks for that, Matt Coleman there with the latest in the news headlines. Now, as I was saying, on his citrus and grape farm at Kingston-on-Murray, Mintubra is an everyday grower, but on YouTube, he's an absolute international sensation. Since moving to the Riverland in 2007, Gashminder Singh, better known as Mintu, has hosted a radio show, ran a newspaper and racked up millions of views for his channel Pendu Australia. The Punjabi Australian told Eliza Burley his audience is keen to learn more about life and farming in rural Australia. Actually, my show is the reality show. Every show, when I'm starting, I don't know what I have to speak. When mic's on, camera on, I start speaking. And uh, people love that thing because all my words coming from heart. And uh, they are saying I'm talking their talk. So they love that talking. So actually reality show is the base of our channel. And that is the pre-shoot or you can say pre-work. But post-work is the most important work for the editing and uh, put on the YouTube. That's time-consuming. Everything is looked after by Manpreet. He is now, before he was, he is actually Australian. He was living with me 10 years. And in 2015, he got job as an IT expert in America. Nowadays, he's living in Tracy. And I shooted everything, put on the drive, and he's download and editing and putting every week shows. So now the teamwork, you can say. Some or, or a lot of your videos are about farming. Can you tell me uh, what are some of the, the things that you've been uh, sharing about farming on your channel? Back in my country, people love, like farming and still they are doing traditional farming. But now there is their kids are educating themselves and uh, they are coming in the farming and they want new experiments and they want uh, new things. They have questions, how's Australian doing citrus? How's Australian doing winery? So then I try to start the videos and showing people how I'm... Today I did the fertilizer before you and we made that video, how we are, we are fertilizing to my grapes. People like that things. They try to do like that way in India and they are getting success and I'm getting everyday calls. When I'm here on the weekends, nearly five to 10 people is coming to meet me just for getting experience in the farming and coming to have a chat with me, photo with me. So every weekend, 20 to 30 people is coming here just for my shows. They learn there and they share their families with back in India or another countries. Especially uh, last April, I was in America. Then I shooted one episode with the Sandhu family. They are five brothers and they are very big farmer. They have 65,000 acre almonds. So their second largest 
farmer in the world as element and i made few videos on their farm and uh, interview with them that video gone in maybe nearly 650000 what have been some of your most popular youtube videos and there is a lots of youtube has gone very popular especially for farming but one video i made here uh, it was real incident with my neighbors and i offer my neighbors free all the food things and then they are saying why then that is story and you can see in the youtube but uh, moral of the story is the share and care i was just telling my friends uh, how we can look after our neighbors so that works really well and now my neighbors look after me i'm not doing much look after them but they are look aftering me after me and when i'm not here they are doing everything for me so that story was when we put on the youtube on youtube it's not going good but someone download and put on the facebook whatsapp then there is millions of shares they gone and it is also uh, my brand as well now people love to when they meet me or then we, like last night uh, two nights before i was in the cricket match in the oval everyone comes to me to have a taken photo because of that video amazing kingston and murray farmer and youtuber mintu bra speaking with eliza burla and it's a uh, remarkable just how far things like this can go when you are tapping into a a market that uh, has so many people and perhaps one that we don't even think about but it's wonderful that he has such interest and so many people keen to find out about what's happening uh, particularly around the riverland now speaking of the riverland and beyond four of the country's most influential lobby groups have teamed up to put pressure on the federal government to inject 5.5 billion dollars into improving the nation's road network over the next 4 years because it is a huge job anyone who has driven anywhere regionally and in some parts of cities and towns as well will know that there is a lot there are tens of thousands of kilometers of roads that need to be repaired after this widespread flooding and uh, wild weather that's been seen for the last couple of years and uh, it's largely uh, local councils who have been really pushing for this because uh, a lot of uh, them are, are bearing the cost of this Zach Whale is the general manager of policy and advocacy at Grain Growers and he explains to Amelia Bernasconi why they've formed this alliance to address this issue So road funding has been on the agenda for a while and lots of people have been talking a lot about the state of the roads right across Australia but it's got to such a critical point that the National Farmers Federation the Australian Livestock and Rural Transporters Association the Australian uh, Local Government Association and Grain Growers have come together to really hammer home uh, what's needed in terms of uh, funding right now uh, in the lead up to the May budget so that we can actually get some of these issues addressed uh because the, the times now it's a huge problem um, it's a big price tag but it's a big payoff uh for all regional road users if we can get this right it probably feels like a lifetime for those that have been living it but um we have seen an extraordinary number of flood events this year and other natural disasters can you take us through it and and the impacts that you've been hearing back from your members Yeah sure so since January 22 there's been 23 flood events with you know hundreds of declarations across most local government areas and the uh, especially wet 
couple of years on the East Coast have just meant that the road service has just broken up and there has not been um, the ability to actually fix that uh, quickly enough uh, so that road users can, can actually have a, a safe uh, and productive road surface to get critical inputs into regional communities, uh, to get exports uh, or, or produce from farm to destination. And, and as I said, also um, to actually ensure that our roads are safe. It's a monumentous task. And it's something that anyone who has driven in, in rural Australia over the last few years would understand. So, you know, it's a productivity issue, it's a safety issue, and ultimately it comes down to getting the right amount of funding back into local governments so that they can get those roads repaired. And in addition, we're seeing more and more need for uh, not just um, standard repair. So you get a pothole, you fix a pothole, but how do we actually better repair these roads and rebuild roads to a point where they can actually withstand uh, greater climate issues into the future. So we're going to get you know, more and more adverse weather conditions and it's not enough to just repair the roads to the same spec. We have to actually think about what it's going to take um, to get the roads repaired so that they can handle um, these conditions into the future and that is not a cheap task. No. So take us through what you're calling on ahead of the May budget. Yeah, so in the, in the May budget, we're asking for a one-off injection of a billion dollars over four years directed specifically um, at, at councils impacted by floods and other natural disasters to ensure that they can rebuild to a higher standard. Uh, we're also calling for $800 million over four years for the Roads to Recovery Program, uh, $300 million a year over four years to address first and last mile freight productivity issues. That's a critical one. We hear so much about first and last mile. Often the middle part of the network um, like imagine your, your big trunk roads and your, your national highways, often they can handle um, high productivity. But the first mile, so from the mailbox um, to your first point of receival or your local market, um, or the last bit, once you actually get off that big arterial road um, to where the, where the goods are going, that's the critical bit that actually needs um, some work. And finally, targeted funding through the Roads of Strategic Importance Program to improve long-term climate resilience of freight networks in general, in addition to um, that targeted funding I mentioned earlier about um, you know, targeted funding for local governments. So it's, it's $5.5 billion. Um, and look, in terms of general budgetary funding, it doesn't seem like much, but gee, that would go some way um, to really help um, fix these, these rural-focused issues um, to make sure that the safety is improved on our rural roads and also we get that productivity kick. Can you take us through, Australia's got a $13 billion grain industry, but what have you been hearing in the past few months that's been detracting for that? Obviously, the floods itself didn't come at a, a good time for harvest, but then you have these uh, added costs, added uh, issues on top when it comes to roads and the like. Look, absolutely. So specifically for the grains industry, um, the aim of the game is to actually get that produce as quickly as possible from farm uh, to a point of destination. And what we saw, and in particular uh, in parts of New South Wales and Victoria, what we saw due to the flooding, there were so many roads that were impacted that the distance uh, farmers had to travel or, or transporters in general had to travel uh, increased because people were diverted. Uh, and look, that's a reality. We understand that that has to happen from time to time, but it added considerable time and expense um, at, a, at what is a really, really busy time um, for, for the grains industry. So under normal circumstances, um, you'd be able to get tracks, uh, trucks rather uh, as close to you know the headers as possible or the chaser bins as possible and then easily, seamlessly get that grain um, back into storage or, or, or to market. In a year like this, you know what we saw was the distances tractors would have to uh, cart grain to, to the point where trucks could access was, was much longer than usual just due to trucks not being able to get into the paddock. And then also once the trucks actually left the farm, having to go all sorts of um, routes to get to their 
uh, receival point. And then even um, the big bulk handlers having issues um, with how do you actually get that grain to port. Uh, because we've had uh, a couple of abnormally large harvests back to back, this just added complexity because the supply chain was already full, uh, the shipping stem was full, um, there was a lot of grain already in the system, so it just made that logistical task tougher. But improving um, this this local road bit, improving the first mile component long term, you know, will actually bring down um, the transport cost for our industry. Uh, we often think in terms of getting grain off a farm and to market, but it's actually also about getting critical inputs in. Um, freight in regional Australia very much goes two ways, whether it be fuel, fertiliser, you know, or other critical inputs. So, you know, that, that freight network needs to work uh, both ways. Um, and if we can do that, that actually brings down costs, um, which, is, which is going to help the, the community on the whole. Zach Whale from Grain Growers speaking with Amelia Bernasconi. Quite a list there of what they would like, that $5.5 billion that they are lobbying the government to put into the nation's road network over the next four years. I know some graziers even in uh, northern uh, South Australia have been trying to get permission to fix their own roads. So what would you want that billion dollars to go towards? If you've been driving around uh, through the summer holidays, perhaps you've seen how bad they are if you don't normally encounter them, but people live in regional and rural communities do have a pretty good idea of just how crummy some of these roads are. Grain Producers SA actually even did a survey late last year on the top 10 worst grain roads. The Upper York Road between Arthurton and Kupara was the number one worst road according to Grain Producers. Nine Mile Road was second and third was the World's End Highway between Robertstown and Udunda. So uh, it's certainly an issue that's been ticking along. A lot of people are starting to put pressure on, as you can hear, with four lobby groups coming together to try and get some more money put into the road system. So I'd love to know where you think the money should be spent, what, are, what your priorities would be. You can text me on 0467 922 or phone at 1300 991. Christopher from Two Wells has texted in to say, put the money into rail. Trains are more cost effective than road transport. Thanks for that, Christopher. There's still roads that just need to be fixed up for safety reasons uh, around the country as well. So I'd be interested to know from a roads point of view what you think. As I said, text 0467 922 or phone 1300 991. It is 14 minutes to one. Get your garden ready for autumn with the March issue of ABC Gardening Australia magazine. Select some gorgeous ground covers, grow herbs for the cooler months and choose your favourite bulbs for spring colour. Learn about gardening on a steep slope, the wonders of compost and the benefits of chook tractors and read about the amazing revegetation of a tropical Queensland island. Gardening Australia magazine, available from newsagents and abcmagazines.com.au. On digital and on mobile. ABC South Australia and Broken Hill. You have started to call in. Bob from Rosewood, good afternoon. Hi, why don't we just put the transport task back onto rail. $5.5 billion spent on rail would save a lot of lives, save a lot of greenhouse gases and do it much more fuel efficiency. So you agree with Christopher there? I mean, South Australia had such a rich train history, but uh, a lot of that's gone now. It'd take a lot to get uh, a lot of those uh, train systems back up and running again. But um, the, there certainly is that push still on the um, uh, the Air Peninsula to try and get uh, more freight onto rail. Thank you so much for calling in, Bob. And uh, Lyndon, good afternoon. 
Yeah, g'day. Um, yeah, I spent eight weeks up around Snowdown doing the bath harvest, and they say about the weather and everything else, roads around there haven't been touched for about a year, and a couple of dirt roads had potholes in them that were nearly six inches deep. I took a straight edge out, put on there and measured it. It was just under six inches deep. Now, that didn't happen because of wet weather or anything else. It's just the poor maintenance on there. The councils either aren't doing their job or they're not giving the money to do it. The, the Brunga Gap Road from St. Anne Brunga Gap, that's got patches on top of patches on top of patches. Now, that has nothing to do with the weather. The road from Tarlee North or from Roseworthy North has been disgusting for about 10 years. I don't even drive on it now. I go around it. It's just... It's a load of crap just to do with the weather. It's No money's been spent for years out there. And putting things on rail is impossible, in my opinion, because all the tracks are buggered. They've still got to get trucks to go from farm to the railhead, which they do at Snowdown. But what do you do with all the other roads? The, the government has really fallen down over the last 20 years spending money on roads. It's disgusting. Absolutely. And when that yeah. freight uh, task was shifted to roads as well, it did sh- shift a lot of the, the cost burden from, uh, say, the state or federal governments to those local councils uh, and uh, has put pressure on them as well in a way that perhaps wasn't factored in. Yeah, it's, I don't know. They've just got to spend some money instead of wasting on office staff or something, put it out on where, the, where, the, where it's needed, I think. But the amount that transport and farmers pay in taxes they should be... Should be the road should be bloody good nowadays, not what they are. Right, thanks, Kathy. Thanks, Kathy. Thanks for calling in, Lyndon. Uh, certainly, uh, at harvest time, it really does come to the fore when you've got a lot of machinery on the roads as well. If you'd like to uh, keep the conversation going, text me zero four six seven nine double two eight nine one or phone one three hundred triple two eight nine one. I'm interested to know what you would want to see that billion dollars go towards when it comes to fixing up roads. Uh, we'll uh, keep looking at that over the next couple of weeks because it's certainly something that has uh, affected a lot of people in rural and regional areas. But uh, moving to trade now, and Australia's Trade Minister Don Farrell is going to travel to China soon. The invitation to visit his Chinese counterparts comes almost three years after major disruptions to a number of exports that have long been catalogued, wine, lobster, forestry, etc. Kath Sullivan asked the minister if his forthcoming visit was a sign that the relationship is now fixed. We made a lot of progress uh, last year when uh, the Prime Minister met uh, the uh, President of China and our Foreign uh, Minister and the Chinese Foreign Ministers uh, met. And of course this week I met uh, with my um, counterpart, Minister Wang. We've started the thaw in the relationship as uh, as they would describe it. So I'm um, optimistic that progress is going to be made um, in respect of all of the issues that uh, are now standing between us. Can we expect the trade to ever to ever to resume and to be what it was? Look, there's no reason why that can't happen. But of course, I think one of the lessons of, uh, of the China experience is that um, we need to diversify our trading relationship. That's why we've entered into uh, new agreements with India. That's why we've entered into uh, new agreements with the United Kingdom. And that's why we're uh, deep in discussions with the uh, European Union. We've seen a shipment of Australian coal arrive in China, the first in years. When do you expect Australian lobsters might arrive there? Well, we've had some good news uh, in in that regard. Uh, For the first time, 
in uh, quite a few years, uh, an Australian uh, lobster company uh, submitted an application for import of uh, lobsters into uh, into China, and the uh, uh, the application was not rejected. So, again, I see that as a positive sign in the relationship. But you won't put a timeline on that one. No, look, th- these problems didn't occur overnight. And um, unfortunately, they're not going to be solved uh, overnight. My job is to make as much progress on as many fronts to try and get as many of these um, trade impediments uh, resolved and quickly resolved. When do you expect Australian timber might be received in China? Well, again, there are some indications that orders, uh, orders are coming through. So there's been a few products which um, progress uh, seems to be uh, heading in the right direction. And uh, again, I would be hopeful that in the very near future, um, our timber products will coming, be coming back into, uh, into China. Will Australia walk away from the complaints it's made to the World Trade Organisation about China's tariffs on barley and, and wine? Look, there are two important cases. We believe we've got um, a very strong case in both, uh, uh, both in respect to wine and in respect to, uh, to, to barley. We're not going to withdraw those uh, applications, but right from the day I got this job eight months ago, I said, look, we would much prefer to resolve all of our outstanding trade disputes by discussion and dialogue. And that's the message I gave to uh, my counterpart uh, this week. We, we would much prefer to resolve these issues by discussion and dialogue. Over the summer, the Agriculture Minister, Murray Watt, travelled to Europe to spruik the credentials, the sustainability credentials of Australian farmers. Are you concerned about their reputation overseas and should producers here expect tough green requirements, things like chemical use and on land clearing, as part of a trade deal with the EU? Look, I don't believe any of those issues will be impediments to us uh, reaching an agreement with the uh, European uh, Union. I spoke with my counterpart on uh, last Sunday night. Both of us have given our negotiators uh, instructions to proceed as quickly as possible. Um, obviously they'll have issues on the table, as, as do we, but I'd be confident that uh, we can satisfactorily resolve all of, all of the outstanding issues at the moment. We've got about 50 negotiators this week um, locked up in uh, the DFAT offices and um, I'm, I'm again confident that um, we're making progress there and um, there'll be a very satisfactory outcome for Australian farmers. Australia's Trade Minister Don Farrell speaking there with Kath Sullivan. So I guess we'll see how that goes. Uh, There's a lot of hope around the thawing of the relationship between Australia and uh, China as from a trading point of view that it might open up some opportunities again. So I guess we'll keep watching what happens there. More texts have come in on the uh, road situation. Again, a lot of focus on rail. John says the USA and Canada don't have the issues we have with using rail. There are railway tracks everywhere. Why can't we do the same? Lyle from Nova Gardens says, be a brain, get the train. Robert, though, from Narracourt says, this talk about climate change causing road issues is rubbish. The roads around the southeast were built in the 1950s and 60s for eight-ton Bedfords at 40 miles per hour. Now we're running 100-ton road trains at 90 k's an hour. The roads have reached their use-by date. Thanks so much for those uh, texts. Again, as I said, keep them coming. 0467 
or phone one three hundred triple two eight nine one. Finally today, uh, we talked about this a bit. It's a burgeoning industry in South Australia, but industrial hemp is being earmarked as an industry with pretty high growth potential in Australia. Dr Olivia Reynolds is Senior Manager for Emerging Industries within AgriFutures Australia, and she says the global hemp market is expected to reach 18.6 billion dollars by 2027, and the diversity of the crop is incredible. And we know that industrial hemp is a sustainable and a diverse or a multi-purpose crop, and it can play a major part in the move to a more sustainable land use, but it also has multiple uses, and that includes from a nutritious and, and safe food through the hemp seeds right through to its utilisation in clothes, fabric, rope, insulation, um, and even building materials. The diversity is is immense. Yeah, interesting. So what do you think is dr- driving the demand for hemp? In Australia, what was paramount was in 2017, hemp seed became legal for consumption for Australian consumers. So that made a huge impact um, on our industry, enabling hemp to be grown for human consumption. So I think that was a real real turning point for our domestic industry. And certainly we've seen that globally as well. There are a number of trials happening across the country in this space. So what are some of the challenges that lie ahead? Yeah, so the industrial hemp variety trials were launched back in 2021 and they're co-funded by AgriFutures Australia and the participating organisations in each state and the Northern Territory. And they're really aimed at looking at addressing and overcoming the challenges that are facing their industry around both varietal selection. So we're looking at seed and or dual purpose, so seed and grain crops, uh, sorry, seed and fibre crops. And also the times of sowing across a diverse range of geographic regions. And these are really fundamental questions for growers if they're going to be planting the crop. They want to know what variety um, and when should I plant that crop at the very least. So this, uh, these trials are certainly going a long way towards that. And they'll also provide some really great agronomic advice because there's a lot of learnings that are going on. Um, and the sharing of information between these sites because it's a um, well-planned, um, detailed project, uh, very robust, um, that's providing really great independent advice for, for our current and indeed our potential growers. Okay, so just for anyone who doesn't know, what actually is industrial hemp and how is it different to cannabis? So industrial hemp has very low tetrahydrocannabinol content or commonly known as THC. So um, that low content means that there are no psychoactive effects whatsoever from consuming the seed and it can be sold, as I indicated, for human consumption. So that really differentiates it from medicinal cannabis. That was uh, Dr Olivia Reynolds, a Senior Manager for Emerging Industries within AgriFutures, and she was speaking with Georgia Hargraves. That's about all we have time for today. We will continue discussing roads and uh, what this money could go towards, particularly if uh, what the lobby groups are pushing for is taken up in the, I think it's May budget, uh, the federal budget. So uh, we'll keep across that. Uh, But if you would like to find out more on what's happening in agriculture right across the country, or perhaps check out that wonderful story about the uh, Riverland farmer who uh, has his uh, 
massive following online, uh, you can go online to abc.net.au slash rural. We also podcast the program each day, so if you want to catch up on anything, just go to where you find your podcast or you can search for it. Uh, just search for the SA Country Hour. That's it for me, though. We are approaching 1 o'clock. Just about time for news. Stay connected with your ABC. Find news online at abc.net.au. Select your postcode to see local stories, news and weather. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.